This is an episode long, long due, and I'm so excited that we can finally bring this out uh, today. So we're talking with Dr. Jillian Bartlett Eskelin. She, you know, is someone that blows my mind. She does so many different projects. The one we're talking about today specifically has to do with pediatric oncology. It's looking at how we can integrate children in decision making, or at least in um, discussions, let's say, of end of life um, you know, in treatment decisions. And um, it's it's a topic that's very interesting and very difficult. As you'll see, it it sounds common sense or you might have a position already in mind, but as you start digging in more and more, and especially when you think of it from a research standpoint, which is what uh, Dr. Bartlett Eskilan is doing, you quickly realize this is, this is a very tricky, very tricky issue. So before we jump into the content, I have the pleasure of formally introducing you to Dr. Jillian Bartlett Eskilan. She is um, she holds the position of research director and is also a tenured professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McGill University. Um, she has done a lot of different um, you know focuses throughout her career, looking at research in health informatics, population health pharmacoepidemiology, research methods, and evaluation methodologies for complex data sets in primary care. Uh, but most of all, she's extremely human, so very bright, but also very um, very warm and kind and, and full of really interesting ideas. So I think you will be as delighted as I have been to spend a little time in her company today. You're listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm your host, Karina Paraskeev. Healthcare Focus is the podcast where we follow healthcare news and industry research so you don't have to. Okay, so the project I'm currently working on, one of my projects at least, is called Anthony's Game. And it's a role-playing game that is designed to collect patient treatment preferences in a safe and somewhat fun environment for a very difficult topic. So at the moment, the game is focused on pediatric oncology, and we're looking to see um, how people use different aspects of characters to make decisions on what treatments they prefer. And then we also introduce genetic testing for different side effects, and we see if that changes how the uh, decisions that people make. So um, to explain it a bit more, essentially what it is, um, why we came up with this game or why we're doing this game is that in um, childhood or with children, the death of a child is actually very taboo in our society to the point that we don't have a word for it. So we have a word for um, somebody whose parents have died, we call them an orphan, or if you lose your partner, you're a widow or a widower. But if you're a parent whose child has unfortunately died through whatever tragic circumstances, we have no word for you. I mean, if you have no child anymore, are you still a parent? Um, I would say yes, but you know, how do you explain that? So we just are not comfortable talking about this at all. So when you have a family who's in a situation where they're giving a diagnosis that could very well be terminal for the child, they are not going to be saying, well, you know, I think if my child's only going to live two years, I really want to have them to have the best quality of life. Everybody in the room, the family, the child, the physician, 
anybody on the clinical team is going to say, okay, we're going to try and optimize um, a treatment that is going to heavily favor survival, even if that survival is an extra month. And some of the work I've done talking with clinicians and with parents, both of parents whose children have survived treatment and children who have not survived treatment, um, they really say, I wish I'd had more information. I wish I'd known what the, all the options are because I really would not have wanted my kid to suffer like that in the final months or in different situations. So that's where I thought, okay, I need a way for people to express preferences that might go against this curative, um, I don't want to call it a bias, but there's really a drive to try and save the child. And they need to be able to do it in a safe space. So, and there's not, thankfully, there's not a lot of, of families in this situation. So I needed to come up with a mechanism that allowed people to express treatment preferences so they know what all the treatment options were, including ones that are just palliative. That means there's no curative focus. It just makes a quality of life for the child. It optimizes the quality of life. Um, so I came up with a role-playing game. And basically, people who don't have that diagnosis, it could be kids, it could be families, it could be healthcare providers, they um, play my game and they express their treatment preferences and it allows me to accumulate treatment preferences based on the different characteristics uh, of the people in the game, the roles. And it gives people a bit of distance to say, well, Tommy loves sports, so he's gonna take this other treatment that's not gonna affect his heart, make him tired, because he really wants to continue his sports, even though the survival is slightly less with that treatment. And then say, but that's not what I would do for my child, but I, that's what I would do as his character, Tommy. So um, that's a game. It's based on one of the families. Anthony is from one of the families that I've worked with to that have helped me establish the need for this game and how we go ahead with it. And um, that's a game in essence. And right now we're finalizing the game and I'll be going out and starting to collect this data systematically to make it available for families and clinicians in the future. So I'm guessing when you're designing a game like that, it's not the same as doing a paper survey, right? Where you just compute answers and do some magic in Excel and then you, you have those charts. How do you translate things that you observe into actual insights? Okay, it's definitely not like a survey, but actually one of the reasons um, I also uh, came up with a role-playing game is that a lot of these uh, kids and their adolescents and young adults um, really should have a voice in both research and care. And we've seen a lot of times they don't. Um, and if you ask like questionnaires or surveys or things like that, those are geared towards adults. They're adult tools for adults and it doesn't adapt well into um, the younger environment, much the same way that many of the things we do Younger people look at us and say, what? What are you doing? How are you using your phone? Why do you do that? So I wanted something that really was developed with and for um, a younger uh, d demographic so they could have a voice in care and in treatment and it could be a tool that they use. Now, having said that, of course, then it doesn't become a neat Excel spreadsheet, as you said. But um, with the type of research I do, we use different research paradigms. So it's not just I have a hypothesis, I'm going to test, I'm going to collect data in a certain way. So I use a lot of qualitative research methods and I use um, what's called ethnographic participant observation. 
so in addition to actually collecting how many times somebody chose that treatment with that character and the different associations, which is numbers and can be quantified, I also asked people about why they chose that and what was their reasoning. Um, and I do a debrief with them afterwards about, okay, how did this make you feel? What did you think when you were doing this? And I have a, an, uh, an assistant in the room with me observing people as they play because the observations let us see things that you can't ask about and that you can't easily record with a survey such as power dynamics or, you know, did somebody get left out of the conversation or was somebody more retiring or maybe they really agreed with somebody else, but they didn't vocalize it. They just nodded their head and smiled. And so we're looking at all of that information. And with qualitative research methods, when you repeat um, something often enough, you reach what's called saturation. So you don't actually get new opinions coming up. And I can then um, analyze those in a way that lets me pull out themes. Like this is what people, you know, three or four things that people consistently did in their decision-making process that are important for you as a clinician or you as a family member to think about how you want to deal with that. So that's what we call when you combine both more standard research that you'd probably be used to um, with what is qualitative research where context is so critical. We call that mixed method and we use that a lot in family medicine and primary care. And I'm guessing for the planning, that's also a very different dynamic because if you have a traditional hypothesis and you test and so on, then you have a timeline that's very predictable. What you're describing is something that is alive and evolving. And as you find new insights, it might add new dimensions, new questions, new things you want to observe. Um, how do you navigate? Uh, because I, I assume that you do have a set timeline that you, you need to be accountable for. How do you remain flexible to say, oh, that's a really good insight. Let's dig deeper in that. So actually, I've got another research paradigm I'm going to introduce you to that we use in family medicine, um, and it's called participatory research. And that's where the people who you ultimately want to use the knowledge you're creating are involved right from the beginning. So I've had the families and young people involved in the design of this game and in uh, addressing what questions will be addressed, as well as the clinicians and the research team that have some really important gaps that they want addressed. So with that approach, you, you, you said the correct word. Flexibility is absolutely essential. And you have to, you have a bit of a longer timeline because you have to account for people expressing their opinions and you have to be flexible and be able to say, okay, we're going to change this slightly and we're going to adapt that. But the benefit of doing it that way is when you do get the results, the people that are going to use it have been sort of coming along with you the whole way. So they're like, great. It's not that you get to the end and you say, hey, I've got these results. And then people say, oh, that's really not what we needed, which is what happens a lot with more traditional research. There are, it's like, well, that's not exactly the format we need it in. And are you really sure it applies to us? So it takes a little more time, a lot more planning. Absolutely, as a researcher, you have to be able to check your ego and your confidence and your expertise at the door because you're involving people that have a lived expertise. These people have a PhD in experience and that's what I want to get from them. And so my PhD in epidemiology and biostatistics, I sort of say, okay, well, that's great and it helped, but I really need this information. And a lot of times I don't want to have lived their experience. They've been through some really, really very uh, challenging and difficult life situations. And then 
so I need them to guide me on that because I'm not, thankfully, the expert in having a child with cancer or being a child with cancer. I love how empowering your approach is because it's really putting the patient in a situation of, of uh, you know, having power over the decisions, the questions, having some say, which I think is better than a passive role that we typically ascribe to them. Um, but it does bring, I think, that the question, if you have so much participation, then you also have variants, right? Like variations. And I notice that a lot when I look, you know, between one person and another um, in, in terms of coping styles and preferences and attitudes and mindsets uh, when it comes to, to death and dying, for example, or, or to treatments. But then I also see it within a single person as that person you know, evolves and it can even be like one week they don't want to talk about it, the next week they want to read everything about it. How do you design a system and how do you design a research that accounts for that variation between individuals and within a same person? So essentially the key to that and the key to many of the complex um, difficulties we have in our healthcare system is that whatever you're doing, it's never the cure-all. It's never the single most important thing. So I, um, this game works to educate people on the decision-making process that families go through. It engages all sorts of people by, by virtue of having to take on a role that they don't customarily have. You know, a clinician might play a child or a family member might play a clinician. So it creates empathy for um, how difficult it is for everyone in this process. But the idea is that that tool and the information generated by that tool is available when they're ready and they need it. And I, I know for a fact that's not going to be at the first clinical visit. I mean, when families heard what, hear the C word, as they tell me, you know, everything else is like white noise after that. So what they said is they'd like all the information, but they need it at different times and maybe repeatedly. So this is just um, putting a new tool in what should be a very well-stocked toolkit. And so there will be other things that are needed Um, there will be other approaches, but this just gives them a sense of, um, it gives them more information and a sense that they're not alone. Because a lot of families, I guess uh, childhood uh, diseases are still relatively rare, thankfully, even though they are a big source of death in childhood. Um, a lot of families feel very, very alone. And this notion that like, okay, everybody in, in situations with this type of child, people made this decision X amount of times and this is this was their reasoning. It gives them the sense that, okay, other people have considered this and this horrible decision and maybe I'm not so alone. So I kind of got off the track there, but it's basically to say that the information the tool needs to be there for those when they need it and maybe in a couple of different time points in their journey um, for different reasons. And there's some families that won't use it. There's some families that feel much better um, putting the power and the decision-making into their clinical team's hands because it just feels safer and it feels they're more comfortable with that and that's maybe more culturally what they're adapted for. And that's fine. That You have to give people the decision. The, the It has to be there, but they have to decide whether or not they're going to use it and what works best for them and at what timing. So I don't, I think as long as we don't consider what we're doing to be the only way to do things and you have that flexibility in what information they use and how they use it, then I think you're making a difference. I know there's a need for this, but I also understand that not everybody's going to use it.
Right, and maybe not everyone likes the format of games, or and, and that's okay too. They might have other tools. Yeah. Too. Um, Absolutely, exactly, and they might be like, "Well, I'm not. I can't do this right now." But the idea with a game is actually I'm playing it with people who aren't necessarily suffering at the time to collect the information, and then the information is there and available. Um, I'm hoping ultimately that different members of the clinical team might be able to use the game to. Um, demonstrate to families some decision-making skills, like how the different treatments are considered and what they might take into account. So, and you know, because it might be a different diagnosis or whatever, they can observe the younger person playing the game, maybe just with their parents to see, okay, you know, indirectly see what the younger person's preferences are and how they um, express those rather than asking quest direct questions, which first of all will not work in that situation, and they will not give, they'll give the answer that preference survival, not the answer that necessarily they think would mean more to them. Do you think, uh, or did you observe, I guess, uh, with, with smaller children or older children, does that make any kind of difference when they're interacting with a game like that and when they're thinking about preferences? Any kind of difference in terms of what? Uh, in terms of understanding of implications and just understanding of what it means to have treatment options, and, and I wonder what age does it become feasible to start having those discussions, or is it we can always have some level of discussion, but it's adapted? Um, and I'm also thinking, when you're thinking of something as terminal as, you know, death, how the, the kids' concepts change over time about what it means to die and, and you know, not live anymore. How, how okay, so so this game can be played as soon as children are verbal. Okay. And the thing with um, now probably around four or five is when you start to get something meaningful out of it. But the thing um, that is important to realize with children facing a potential terminal diagnosis is, first of all, childhood is the only state they're going to experience. And secondly, they are far more mature and aware than children who haven't had a terminal diagnosis. They're very protective of their family. They they know, they know they're dying. And um, but it's not something that's discussed. Everybody uh, engages in something called mutual pretense, where they everybody pretends everything's going to be well because really it's the only way to function. And we've got such strong societal norms that we push back against a lot against families that um, are openly accepting of the death of a child. So the game um, works for just about anybody. And what I, the only thing I found uh, in my research is that it's when I'm doing the data collection, not necessarily in the clinical situation where there's a diagnosis, when I'm doing the data collection, I have to um, not have adults play with younger people because they reinforce the power dynamic. So even though an adult, uh, a, ch a younger person might be playing an adult role and an adult might be playing the younger person's role in the game, the adults will negotiate amongst themselves for the treatment decision and they will somewhat sideline the uh, younger person. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, <laughs> we're only playing younger people with younger people and adults with adults. So, um, but, Every so far, I'm still in the. the I, I'm about to start the data collection um, with different groups. Where right now we're still tweaking the design a little bit. Uh, everybody who has played, all the younger people, everybody, um, even adults, have said, "I had no idea 
this is what's involved in decision making in a clinical situation. I had no idea how many things you have to think about. I had no idea how many things you had to consider. And everybody came away with a sense of, wow, now I know more what's involved. And I think that even playing this with non-ill populations is a great idea because it gives them an insight into the healthcare system and what goes on there and how difficult it is and how many things need to be taken into account. So I think the more we can do that and the more people understand, I think um, the more support we'll have for development of different research and tools and uh, clinical contexts. So it's sort of a win-win-win-win situation. <laughs> it is. But so what what kind of things do go into that those decision-making? Because it, it does look fairly straightforward when you look from the outside. You're thinking, okay, I have a diagnosis. Maybe choose like what kind of therapy I want. What, what else would you have to think about? So with this current version of the game where we're looking at a um, treatment for childhood um, liver cancer, And I have two different levels. I have one where the person comes in at stage one and the other one is where they're coming in at stage three. So there's different treatment options with that. And um, my clinical team developed four different treatment options. Three of them have different elements of chemotherapy with different side effect profiles. And the fourth one is no chemotherapy. It's um, palliative care with where you just do symptom management. And I have the survival with each and I have the side effects. And there's a couple of really important side effects um, for certain medications that affect hearing and affect heart. So the um, younger person's avatar talks about how becoming a patient, how they, what happened to them and what the, the doctor said to them. And then everybody has what that prognosis is. So the diagnosis and what stage it is and, and what that means. And then they have four treatment options and they have to actually read through them all And in consideration of the role they're playing and the role of the child, they have to rank which treatment they would take first and why. And um, now, typically in a clinical situation, the clinician might only present the top two options because they're the best curative uh, focus because they really don't have a lot of information about what families might prefer or not. So this allows, this is, They, when they see that information, the side effects, how often you're in hospital, what's likely to happen to you, how many of these side effects would be permanent if you do survive. So I hear them discussing things like, okay, but my character loves to play music and the hearing loss is really important and I don't think like a 10% difference in survival is worth risking hearing loss. And they have those discussions at the table. And that's what families go through. Um, so they are, they say, okay, and they see how difficult it is to balance out all of these different things. And we have uh, family characters who live, you know, two hours from the hospital or six hours from the hospital. And, and okay, this treatment means you have to come in every two days. And this one means you need to stay overnight. And this one means I'm going to miss six months of my graduating high school year. So it's, it's, um, That's what's involved, and that's what people don't often realize. And why, why did you choose to have different roles? Because when I hear you speak, it seems like a straightforward analysis. Like these, you could also um, almost build a decision matrix, say, I'm putting weights on these criteria because they matter to me, and I just look at the total of column, and I, why, why does a mother think differently than a child, for example? Well, so we have created characteristics Um, for the characters and we have clinicians playing those clinician roles as well 
And some of the clinicians are more research oriented and some of them are more patient oriented and some of them are more like supportive of families. Um, so we're trying to change what people bring to the table so that they think beyond just the survival. Because right now how treatment is focused is a balance between the harmful side effects and the survival. What we're bringing into it is quality of life. So things like how much energy do you have as a person? How likely, how much pain would this treatment cause? Um, how likely are you to be anxious or depressed? Um, you know, how much is this uh, treatment going to affect your usual activities? What are your usual activities? Obviously somebody who is highly sports oriented and competitive, the side effects with the, that where you could be potentially have heart problems for the rest of your life or even heart failure where you may eventually end up in a wheelchair because you, um, your heart doesn't function properly because of the chemotherapeutic treatment, then that sports, if somebody's sports oriented, we want to know, do they take into account the sports or will everybody always value survival? So that's what we don't know. Because right now we have a paradigm that we use survival balanced by uh, harms of the side effects. But we don't know if people would sacrifice a certain amount of survival to have a higher quality of life. Because in my um, deliberations and engagements with the parents, there was an indication that they would sacrifice survival, like a couple of months of survival to have uh, their child be less ill and suffering less in those last months of life. But we don't have enough of those experiences to definitively say, you know, people will take this lower treatment eight out of 10 times when they're talking about a sportive child. So that's why I need to play the game and be able to answer that question. So it's really interesting because on the one hand, there's this idea about preferences and values. And I think that's the area that you're encompassing there. But I see a lot also of links with different things that have to do with the medical field's ability to actually predict accurately those timeframes, right? And when I think of uh, Atul Gawande's, uh, like what he's publishing, he was mentioning how sometimes um, physicians can unfortunately be very bad at knowing, do you have four months or two years? And I think that even complicates the decision because then I, as a patient who may have different options to, to for myself, maybe I don't want to go extreme and say I'm giving up completely treatment, but I also don't have that element of certainty. I have exactly four months left. Do you know how people are going to navigate this this area of uncertainty or do we expect the medical field to become more and more precise over time so this won't be an issue anymore? I think it's always going to be an issue. I think there's some areas where we have better evidence and some areas where we don't. So that kind of veers into a different topic where I think that the only way that evidence is going to get better is if we share our information more freely and openly and we get less proprietary about it. And actually many of the um, networks that involve children's data are doing this more and more that they can have better information, but it means, um, you know, it's, it, it's, that starts to veer into the topic of open science and data sharing and, you know, bringing down those barriers that we have a lot of barriers in how health information travels. And I understand there's, you know, there's a, a strong imperative to protect people's privacy, but um, there also has to be a balancing between protection of privacy and actually 
being able to help the people that need it because they desperately need better information. And unfortunately, I was going to say unfortunately, but that's my researcher side speaking. Fortunately, it's my human being side speaking. Um, you know, a lot of this is rare occurrences, which means we absolutely need to share the data. And many families are very, very willing to share the data because they just, um, there's a big imperative that they express about helping others. They know how difficult this situation is. And, you know, whatever happens on the adult side, it's a thousand times more difficult on the pediatric side. So they know and they want it. They want, they're sad that they know other people are going to share that journey with them, but they'd like it to just be a tiny bit easier for the next person. And uh, another dimension that's interesting, um, and I've spoken about that in, in the previous uh, in a previous episode, but I'll, I'll also link it back here in the notes. Um, there's a study that actually showed people's preferences before their first session of chemotherapy and after. And just after one session, I think the numbers went down. I think they were up to something like 70% preferred uh, a longer lifespan to the expense of quality of life. And the numbers drastically shifted after their first encounter. And so I think there's also a question there of, um, and, and perhaps even the, the data could show us that if, if it did include um, people from both sides, do people who have no experience with this value things differently than someone who has gone through it? And can we, as people who haven't gone through it, imagine what it's really like? Because you can read on a piece of paper that you'll have nausea and fatigue and pain, but what does it really mean to live it? Yeah. So that will be a later question that I look at because, um, but by having the information from this game available to families, it actually lets them think about quality of life because a lot of times they that won't be brought up in the conversation like how the time you spent in the hospital will impact your life well like you know the fact that one of the parents may have to give up their job to care to ensure that the child can get to these treatments or um, the financial burden the travel time so hopefully by having this information available saying okay in this situation here's what people chose and why it allows them to reflect on okay what's what's really important to us and and the family to have a conversation potentially about you know they know their child and the child potentially to be empowered to say hey that's like me i really i really like that and so no there's no way to convey Uh, the actual chemotherapy treatment. And the other issue is you don't know how you're going to react to it. You don't know that you're going to be the person that gets every single one of those and you just feel so miserable. You're like, okay, no, this, I can't do this. Um, so, but it at least maybe will allow them to reflect and maybe consider uh, and have a conversation with their healthcare team about, okay, let's, let's talk about these side effects a little more in depth before we commit to something. And so it is genomic data is that where it comes in because it gives you that extra layer of information of for my particular case I'm likely to experience this and that. yes yes absolutely so the other thing we want to know with this game um, in this particular scenario um, the genomic uh, testing results lets you know how likely you are like it gives you a better um, measurement of how likely you are to suffer the hearing loss or to have the heart problems and um, What I want to know is, does that change people's decisions? And um, 
it's very interesting because it's what so far what's happening is it really depends on the stage of the cancer. So one where um, survival is very high because it's a very early stage, um, they sort of preference survival. So I'm looking to see like does this change their um, preferences because if it doesn't change their preferences then it's an expensive test that we're doing for no good reason. Well, it does give the clinicians a bit more information on what to look for, but, you know, and so if it does change it, then that's an argument for why this needs to be systematically done and made available to as many patients as possible. And I think it's, so these are kind of questions you think might be answered already and obvious, but they're not. Yeah, and I think it's brilliant because your concept is, is something that's evolving also with the patient in the sense that you may have played that game once, that the test that's, you know, you take it and you have the answers, but... I think what's, what you're giving the patient also is those kind of mental buckets that they'll carry around. And I'm guessing the situation might change, the, the phases of, of uh, evolutions are changing, but somehow I think if you have those front and centered in your mind, that might inform your decision as things progress. And I think that's that's a really great insight to, to offer. Um, all right. I think we've covered a lot of those questions. I think one of the um, more like at a higher level question that people might be wondering about is when you have palliative care, is it really a dichotomous uh, situation? Do you have to choose between, uh, you know, prolonging life or palliative care? Or is there some kind of in-between solutions that are possible? So that is actually a very, very big misconception and a bit of a disservice to palliative care that exists Um, and you're not the only one to express it by any means. So palliative care is not always end-of-life care. Palliative care is really about symptom management. And ideally, um, now because um, people who are, get a cancer diagnosis want to think that they're going to, we, we have a whole terminology around cancer that it's the enemy, and we got to fight it, and you're a survivor, and you know, there's all this wording around it that really um, ensures that people view it a certain way. So when the word palli when palliative care is brought up, people are like, oh no, that means that nothing else is working, and then I'm just gonna, they're just gonna look after me until I die, and that's not the case, that's not what palliative care is about at all, either in the adult system or in the child Uh, the pediatric system. Palliative care um, is they are experts in pain management, in symptom management, and addressing quality of life issues with patients. So ideally, in a, in a, a well-integrated system, palliative care would be there right from the get-go to say, hey, we're here to help you manage this whole process. Unfortunately, in our system, because of these misperceptions, we are we have a shortage of palliative care physicians, and uh, we have a lot of people that won't use the services because they're terrified. They're, they think that that's an admission that they're going to die, and um, I think it's really unfortunate. And I'm kind of I'm hoping with this game and with um, a lot of the education that we can change those um, perceptions and better integrate quality of life into the cancer path, however it ends. Is the quality of life discussion um, absent also partly because of funding? Is it expensive to bring in that um, added dimension to a treatment or does it not really cost much? Who could take care of it in the system? 
Um, well, palliative care is a natural, the natural clinicians and team to take care of it. So of course that is an additional option, but um, I think it's more a cultural thing. It's more of how focused we are on a curative focus. So, you know, keep in mind that people, when they hear cancer, they're in crisis management, right? They're trying to assimilate this diagnosis. Their, their, their life is sort of crumbled from what they thought it was going to be and they have to rebuild it into this new vision so it's very traumatic and that may not be you know you're just thinking okay how do I, how do what do i do what's the best thing to happen to me so this is why i'd like to have this information available to the families so that when the initial panic subsides they have more things to think about and i don't think at the moment the information just isn't there in terms of what people have valued for quality of life. So it's not that the clinicians don't have these conversations with the families or don't want to talk about this. It's just they have very little information to help start that conversation or um, make it happen. And they do, to a certain degree, talk about this. Um, but I, it, I don't think it's systematically done. And I think it's because there's a lack of information. And I think it... Once the information is there, they will integrate it into their conversation. Actually, I know they will because I've spoken to the oncologist and the palliative care, and they said, "Yeah, you give us this. If you get us the information from the families and the patients, yeah, that would be fantastic. We'll use it." That's exciting, and I think you bring in an, an interesting point. There's maybe a lack of information, maybe even a lack of comfort for some providers that maybe don't know how to have those talks. And I think bringing that information might give them a sense of um, maybe ease with, "Okay, I know a little bit what I'm venturing in." And I can anticipate a little bit the discussions and maybe it'll give an extra boost of courage or um, knowledge gap that's missing there to, to be able to address it from their side too. I hope so. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think that, that wraps up a lot of the questions that I had. I think um, what might be interesting is people might be curious to hear and learn a little bit more about this topic. What do you think are go-to books, resources? Um, where, where could people gain that awareness that perhaps we're missing in society on which specific topic <laughs> well any of the ones we've, co we've covered, a covered a lot we've covered a lot but i think uh this idea that you mentioned of um not having palliative care as this distinct idea this idea of preferences and things you might want to talk about um maybe this idea also that children are aware about what's going on and that they they might want to talk about it or express some preferences So um, a lot of the resources you're talking about might be in the medical literature, so they're not necessarily something that will be easily consumable by the public. I know there are a lot of people uh, involved in palliative care and trying to change those perceptions. I don't have anything I can recommend off the top of my head for that. Um, the book that has driven uh, a lot of what I'm doing and that even though it was written in the 1970s, uh, it's extremely relevant today. Not easy reading. Uh, I don't recommend you read it on public transportation, but um, it's called The Private Worlds of Dying Children by Mira Bluebon Wagner. It was her PhD work, uh, and she basically uh, observed what was happening on um, pediatric oncology wards back in the 1970s and she wrote it up as a book for her PhD 
And what was fascinating to me is this notion that I discussed of mutual pretense that everything was going to be okay appeared in my work, you know, 40 years later. Hmm. And we still haven't found a way to get the information we need and circumvent the mutual pretense. Like, I don't want to force families into a very emotionally stressful situation when they're already in a crisis. So that was why I had I came up with a role-playing game. So I'm like, I need a safe way for people to express preferences in a situation where mutual pretense would be um, triggered. That is- and that gets triggered every time the death of a child is considered. Yeah, no, that's very impressive. And I think it's a very creative uh, workaround that you found there. Um, I'm also going to put a link to something that I thought was interesting because you made me think of it when you were mentioning. So the uh, president, I think that's the title, of uh, John Hopkins University was talking about genomics medicine, but also about the legacy that we have. And he said a very long time ago, medicine was basically we can't really do anything because we don't understand what the disease is so we're just going to make you comfortable and then later it progressed into I'm trying to like solve and figure out what it is and I think this is an interesting societal shift because it's almost a pendulum like we're saying well maybe it's not one extreme or the other maybe there's a space in between to say I, I can work on making you feel better and I'm also acknowledging that you as a human being you know have other needs than just to survive which I think is a, is a great insight to look into as well. I think that's the whole part of humanizing medicine and it's it's fascinating. I, I think it'll be a fascinating journey as we go forward where there will be technological advances like genomic testing that really help people. They get the right treatment at the right time for the right person. At the same time, allows us, maybe it'll free up a bit of space to allow us to develop relationships and discussions and consideration of context, which is so critical because it's not Health is not just about survival, and life is not just about survival. We're we're all going to die. That's pretty certain. So I think the journey there is what becomes really critical, and how can we maximize that for everybody, including people that don't typically have a voice, such as younger people. Thank you so, so much. It was extremely insightful, and I'm very touched to hear, you know, the the passion that you have and that really that you're dedicating your research to something so important. So thank you for your work. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss this. It's obviously very uh, near and dear to my heart, and it's I really appreciate any opportunity to share um, the information that has come from a lot of people that really put themselves out there to um, inspire this. So the families at Megan's Walk and the healthcare professionals at the different children's hospitals. So thank you so much. If you think others just like you might enjoy this podcast, help us spread the word. Give us a quick rating, write us a review, or just share with a friend. It's been an amazing opportunity to hear Dr. Jillian Bartlett Esquilan share with us so many insights and the work that she does. And I know she's extremely busy also like with so many projects going on, so we're, I think, all the more fortunate and lucky for having had the opportunity to hear a bit more uh, about this. Um, in the next few weeks, we're going to be diving a little bit more into research, and I, it's really something that has um, 
poked my interest as I was、uh, talking with her because I realized there's a whole field out there that we sometimes don't see as much, we don't hear as much, and it's the research work and, and specifically the design research work that can go behind you know, services that we experience every day and encounters just like these ones that she was、um, describing. And it's, it's very exciting, I think, to just discover. How, how are things made and why do certain things you know, unfold the way they do, and maybe how can we improve them? So, this will be coming up. We are taking、um, a slight detour towards aging、um, and policy, which was somewhat tangential, I guess, to, to some of the, the topics we've been、uh, discussing right now、um, before we dive a little bit more into the creative space.、Um, and this is perhaps to see the other side of, of the story. So, we've seen.、Uh, You know, the, the world of children. We're gonna explore next week the world of aging、uh, folks. And I don't even know what the, <laughs> the correct way to, to phrase this、uh, w- without being ageist,、um, but basically the, the other、um, spectrum of, of life. And, and then we are going to、um, dive into design research and research in the medical field, which I think will be very exciting as well. It's very rare that we do this here, but I did want to、uh, do a special shout out to Monia Fonsik. She's the reason for which, partly for which this podcast was able to take place、um, today. And that's because she, she works on the project which we heard about、um, as a designer. And through the research and so on, she,、uh, you know, we, we, Spoke so many times about all the great things that they're, they're doing, and she was the one to introduce me to Dr. Jillian Bartlett Eskilan. And so, Monia, thank you on behalf of everyone who was able to enjoy this show today. <laughs>